This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. It's good to see you here today. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here at Christian Chapel. If we haven't met, I'd love to do that later. Uh, if you're a guest with us, you're joining us in week five of a, a series of messages that we've been exploring the foundations of our faith. This has kind of coincided, uh, if you're a history buff, you probably already know this, but with the 500-year the anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther marches down the street of Wittenberg, nails his 95 theses to the door, and all of that and what it begins leads to us sitting here today and worshiping God in the way that we're worshiping Him. So over the past uh, four weeks, we've been exploring exactly how the the events of the Reformation returned us to the Scriptures as our source of authority for faith and for the way we practice our faith, the way we live our lives. And if you've been here, hopefully you've noticed a, a theme that the foundation of your life has uh, really nothing to do with you at all. Uh, and and the, the ability of your soul to be secure and certain in the very uncertain seasons that we often find ourselves in is rooted in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So we've talked about how uh, you know, the, the foundation of our life is the sovereignty of God, that he's the one who's over all things, in all things, the one who controls all, controls all things, is directing the course of our life. Uh, we are grounded in Christ alone as our source of salvation. We are saved by his grace and through his faith that goes to work in us. Last week, we talked about how scripture alone is the, um, the revelation of God to us. It's our our, both our foundation and our filter for truth in our world. And we're going to wrap up this morning by talking about uh, an idea that was really essential in the, the Reformation, this idea of the priesthood of believers. And kind of in conjunction with that, we're going to return to some ideas that we talked about in the very first week about how when we are part of the priesthood of believers, then all of our life is for the glory of God alone. And as we begin to live out our identity as members of his priesthood, um, it really changes the way we work and the way we approach every aspect of our lives. So if you have a Bible, we're going to get to uh, two foundational scriptures this morning that kind of lead us to these ideas, one from First Timothy chapter 2, one from First Peter chapter 2. Um, but before we do that, I want, to, want us to consider our tendency in Christianity to kind of create two classes of people. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about classes of people as, as those in Christ and those outside of Christ, but within the church, we tend to, to create these two distinct groups of the, those who are really close to God, the, the super Christians, and then just kind of us common folks who were Christians, but we're not quite as good as they are. You know, I think in some ways it's kind of a, a superhero myth that infiltrates the church and, and begins to color the way we view our world. And that superhero idea is something that's very prevalent in our culture. In 2017 to this point, uh, five of the ten highest grossing movies of this year are superhero movies. Uh, you know, they are becoming the, the thing that, uh, you know, and, and I don't know, any superhero movie fans? Anybody? Uh, you don't have to be ashamed. Some grown men are like, I mean, we all, everybody loves the idea of, you might not like the spandex, but you like the idea of being the hero, right? Of being the one that like, man, when we watch those movies, we, you don't find yourself identifying with the, the person cowering in the corner needing to be saved. You identify with Captain America, with Thor, with Hulk, with, you know, all of these types of things. That's who we are. That's who we 
want to be, you know, and, and, and these superhero movies kind of become uh, just a way for us to identify with this idea that, yes, there are always going to be people who are just a little bit better, a little bit stronger, a little bit more noble, a little bit uh, more pure in their thoughts and their actions, and they are more worthy of our admiration and of doing great things. Now, all that's fine in the Marvel universe, uh, but when we begin to attach those same ideas to the church and to the way we interact in the body of Christ, they can really do some big damage to us. Now, this is not a new temptation for us. In fact, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you'll see that in the nation of Israel, they too struggled with this idea of two classes of people. They were all called to be the people of God. And then within the people of God, God gave certain people different jobs. In God's eyes, they were all equal, but in the eyes of Israel, they began to elevate certain groups above others. And so for, for ancient Israel, it would have been the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And these were the, the super believers of their day, the ones who were closer to God, the ones who heard God's voice, the one who had been entrusted to rule on God's behalf. And so they were elevated above the common people. Now, when Jesus comes, he teaches us uh, that he has leveled the, the playing field with all of us, that we all now come to God on equal footing. Jesus has fulfilled the role of a king. He is over all of us. He's fulfilled the role of the prophet. He speaks the words of God to us. He has fulfilled the role of the high priest. He's offered the perfect and final sacrifice. He's fulfilled all of the law. And so now we come to him as, as a, priest, a priesthood. Right, We're all on equal footing before him. But what we see is, even though this is what he establishes, and in the early church we see this experience, especially if you read through the book of Acts and Paul's letters to the churches, it's all about this, hey, we are all in this together. We are all on equal ground. We all have equal access and equal responsibility. But it doesn't take long for the church to begin to develop, the church to begin to institutionalize. And, and really, when the church is kind of given the favor of the Roman Empire in the, the early 300s, and we are formalized as an institution, we quickly revert back to this idea of there are the super-Christians, and there's kind of the rest of us. You know, and the, the language that, that wound up being used was there were the priests, and there were the people. And the common belief was, if you really wanted to know God, if you really wanted to experience Him, if you really wanted to be at peace with Him and to please Him, then you had to do everything you could to become a priest. And if you couldn't become a priest, maybe you could become a monk or a nun. And this was a way for you to get closer to God. Now, you and I can sit here today, uh, you know, and, and think, well, isn't that great? They were so ignorant, and we have advanced so far beyond that. And yet, if we're honest, you still see elements of this even in our Protestant evangelical churches today, where we maybe don't elevate the prophet, the priest, the king, but we elevate the, the pastor who we like, the worship leader who we enjoy, the author who we really enjoy reading, the blogger, the, the person who just seems to maybe pray a little bit more than we do or be a little bit more in tune. And, and we kind of view them as like, well, if I, if I really want to know what the scriptures say, I'm going to read their book about what the scriptures say. If I really want to know how to pray, then I'm going to read their book about prayer. I'm going to listen to their teaching. If I really want to experience God's presence, then I've got to go to a place where that person's leading worship or this person's preaching. And, and in those settings with those people, and, and we begin to revert back to these two classes of people, the, the super Christians and then just the rest of us. And the, the problem with that is in doing so, we are readopting a system that Christ has told us is no longer valid for us. This is not a, a new problem. It's not a new struggle. Again, we're, we're kind of observing the, the 500 year anniversary of the, the Reformation. Well, the Reformation begins with a man named Martin Luther. 
Luther was a son of a, a middle-class uh, business family. His dad had plans for Luther to go to school and to become a lawyer so that he could help grow the family business. So he sacrifices, he sends Luther to all these private schools and uh, sends him off to university and then to law school. Well, while Luther is in law school, he is a, very much a, a tormented soul. Honestly, there's, there's not really any other way to put it. And, and he is questioning is this really the path of the most significance? Is this the way for me to please God? He's confronted by his own mortality. So on a, a particular day, he's went home and he's coming back to university and he gets caught in this huge thunderstorm. There's lightning strikes everywhere. And Luther cries out to God and says, if you save me, I will become a monk. Well, he doesn't die in the thunderstorm. And so he now uh, believes he has made a deal with God and God has held up his end. So now Luther has to hold up his end. So he becomes a monk. He doesn't tell his dad about it. He decides, uh, like, we've been there too. It's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. So several weeks later, he lets his dad know, hey, I am a monk now, not going to be a lawyer. Sorry about that. Uh, but God told me to do it. So Luther becomes a monk. He, he begins uh, this process of, of completely turning his back on his old way of life, convinced that if he does so, he will find peace with God. He will find purpose and meaning and significance to his life. In addition to being a monk, after a couple years, Luther is also ordained as a priest. And, and now as a priest, Luther has reached the summit of the spiritual mountain of the medieval Christian. Right? There, is, there is no closer uh, access to God that he can have outside of becoming uh, a bishop or a cardinal or the pope himself. And, but what Luther finds is as he climbs that mountain, the view is not at all what he thought it would be. He's still tormented. He still doesn't have peace. He still does not find purpose and meaning and significance. He still wrestles with his doubts. And over the years, I've, I've watched a lot of friends and, and even a few family members who've went down this same road that Luther went down, who were struggling with certain issues, certain doubts, certain insecurities, believing that, that maybe the thing they were giving their lives to wasn't really a significant thing. You know, maybe this, this field of education or, or business or service, wherever they had invested their time and energy, it wasn't good enough and their soul was restless. Or maybe they were struggling with sins they, they couldn't defeat. And so for one reason or another, they all decided, well, if, if I'm not satisfied here, then what I'll do is I'll go become a, a pastor or a missionary or I'll, I'll work in a seminary or a Christian school or I'll, basically I'll, I'll turn my back on this and I will devote myself wholly to the Lord. Again, I'll operating from the same misunderstanding Luther had that if I want to please God, I have to separate from everyone else and dedicate myself to him in this particular place, this particular cast. And what's happened for my friends and family is the same thing that's happened for Luther. You know, any time we start to make sacrifices God hasn't asked for in order to earn something that he's given to us for free, we're going to be miserable. Like, I think of a buddy who, uh, when he was in college, he, he just struggled with, with certain sins and he, he couldn't get over them. And he decided the cure for his sin was to become a pastor. That's a horrible idea. Right? Like, there's, nothing, there's nothing about that that is a good idea. And, and so what happened to him? Well, he, he could do it for about 10 years. But the sin was never taken care of. It was just a, a religious act. And so eventually it rears its head again and comes and, and conquers him and destroys this time not only him, but his family and his church as well. 
See, we're, so often when we believe this lie that there are two classes of Christians, then we'll do whatever we can to get in that higher class so we can hear God's voice, so we can learn from Him, so we can be at peace with Him. But all of our striving is trying to achieve something that God has already given to us freely in Christ. The, the gospel is abundantly clear to us. That in every way we lack, Jesus is sufficient. That for every uncertainty of our soul, it's his faith that's going to lead us through. And anytime we start to put our, our faith, our hope, our trust in anything but the work of Jesus Christ alone, we're setting ourselves up for failure. So Luther has this experience himself. He is absolutely miserable. But the, the beauty of it is, is even when we act in ignorance, God in his grace still works through our ignorance. So Luther comes into the monastery, he becomes a priest, he earns his doctorate of theology, and and all through each of those movements, he is being uh, surrounded by the scriptures. He's being given access to the Bible in a way that he never would have as a lawyer or in other places. And, And it's as Luther begins to dive into the scriptures that this idea of two classes of people, the priests and the people, begins to be dispelled by the truth of what the scriptures say. The two passages we're going to look at this morning are are two of the primary ones that teach us this idea. First, we find in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now again, Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor of a church. And he's telling Timothy, look, your job is not to serve as an intermediary between the people and God, but your job is to proclaim this message to them. There is one mediator, and it is the man, Jesus Christ, who offers himself as a ransom for sin on behalf of all people. And so Paul is pushing us to understand this idea that the only person we need to communicate with God, to live in right standing with God, is Jesus Christ. And so it's passages like this that that lead us to reject the idea that I need another person to help me experience the presence of God. Anytime we put a person between us and God, we denigrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul is making it abundantly clear to us. Jesus is the ransom for your sin. There is no payment left to be made. So so what this means for us just very practically is it's fine to call your grandma or your mama and ask her to pray for you. But she doesn't have any kind of special access that you don't have. She doesn't have some channel to God that you can't tune in on. The, The way has been opened by Jesus Christ once and for all. And Paul says, for all people. When he's writing to Timothy, it's a reminder to Timothy, you might be the pastor, but you're still one of the people. You are all in this together. You are all in need of a mediator, someone to go between you and God. And thank God Jesus Christ has done that for us. So we appreciate the gifts that God has given to the church in pastors and worship leaders and authors and teachers and prophets and evangelists and all these things. We, We appreciate them and the work that they do. And yet we also recognize They don't provide us with access to God. That has been done once and for all through Jesus Christ. And and when Jesus calls us to himself, he's not just calling us into a relationship with him, but he's calling us into a brand new identity. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter's showing us that, that our new collective identity in Christ is one where Jesus places us in a community where the, the community's defining characteristic is its free, open, and continuing access to God. Right? Before we are defined by anything else, by any other title, the thing that devi- defines the church is that we believe we have access to God, that his presence dwells among us and dwells inside of us and dwells with us in a very special way when we gather together to worship him. Peter uses some interesting terms here to remind us we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He's painting a picture of, hey, you've been given this new identity. You are God's chosen people. He has chosen you for this role and for this place. And and one of the the terms he uses here that's so important for us to understand is he says, you are a royal priesthood. And now now in the Old Testament, the, the idea of a priesthood is one who has access to God, one who intercedes for God on behalf of those who don't know him or those who are trying to seek him. A priest is one who can worship God in ways that others don't get the privilege of doing. And now Peter says, in Christ, you are all a royal priesthood. You've all been brought in to this reality where you can experience the fullness of God's presence. In the Old Testament, the the people's experience of God was always going to be somewhat limited. There were always going to be things that were kind of out of bounds for them to do because they weren't born into the right tribe to be a priest. And what Peter's saying now is, no, no, no. You are all God's chosen people. And part now of being God's chosen people in Christ is you are the priests of God. So before you were anything, like we have all kinds of titles in our life, right? I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a pastor, I'm a friend. What Peter's telling me is before all of those things, I am chosen by God to be part of his royal priesthood. It means that, that your title is priest supersedes every other title that you have in life. Now, you might have some titles that you're very proud of, some titles that you've worked really hard to earn, some titles that you put a lot of money and effort into, right? Some of you, you're, you're still paying off some of those titles, like college graduate, uh, you know, master's degree. You're still paying those bills to Sally Mae and everyone else every month, and, and you've earned them, and you're proud of them. But what Peter's telling us is it's secondary, or you might be really proud of the idea that you're a husband, you're a wife. Maybe you worked really hard at that. Maybe you're proud of mom or dad, grandma, or grandpa. But what Peter's saying is all of these titles fall under your role as a royal priest of God. Now, the, the thing that we have to fight against here is that we take this idea of I've been made a priest of God and we kind of reintroduce this superhero myth into the church. of Well, if I'm a priest of God, then I don't need all you people. Because I can just stand out on my own, me and Jesus, I'm a priest to him, he's a priest to me, and I don't need any of you. But, but again, consider the community language Peter's using. You're a chosen people, holy nation, a royal priesthood. But it's, it's all inclusive language of a community that we are being called to each other. So it's never, I am a priest to myself, but it's we are priests to each other. When we are ordained into the royal priesthood of Christ, 
We are given access into God's presence, and we are given responsibility for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for those who do not know him. So our function then as the royal priests of God is to care for one another, to intercede for those who don't know Jesus, to worship him freely and often, and to invite others into this good news with us. Our role as priests is to confront the lies of our culture about who we are and why we are and to to tell them the truth of this is who God is and this is why he's made us and this is how we walk with him. And we do that wherever we are. You don't have to wait for a particular title or a particular position to begin fulfilling your role as a priest of God. Peter says, when you're ordained into this royal priesthood, it's so that you can declare the praises of him called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. See, the role of a priest is never to draw attention to himself or herself. But the role of a priest is always to point people to Jesus. It's always to reflect the glory of God out into the world and to reflect any praise that comes back to them back to God himself. The priest just just points to Jesus and says, well, this is what he's done for me and this is what he can do for you. And and anything you're impressed with me is the result of his gift and his grace to me. And so we're constantly pointing back to him, which means we are not just priests of God because he likes us, but we're priests of God because he wants us to live for his glory and for his fame in the world. It's a, a tremendous privilege. And so when we begin to consider, then how do we how do we function in that priesthood? If God has called you to be a priest before he's called you to be anything else, what do you do? Well, first, you can be faithful where you are. This idea of being a priest is not dependent on when you get a new job, graduate, or grow up. But you are one right now. For the Levites, when they were born into Israel, they were born into this particular tribe. And some of them were then born into the particular clan and family where they would become priests. So it was ordained for them before they were born. If they had sons, they were going to become priests of God. That same language is being used here to remind us, before you were anything else, God ordained you to be a priest. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, if you're living under the grace of Christ through faith in him, then he has ordained you for his priesthood right where you are. So don't believe this super Christian myth that, well, God will use me as part of his priesthood once I start doing something really spiritual with my life. You know, it's it's kind of this, this false ideal that gets presented in the church at times of, well, those people who really love God are the ones who turn their backs on the world and fully devote themselves, who become the modern day monks and nuns, or the stories of, so I sold everything, so I quit my job, and, and, and God may call you to do that. And if he does, go for it. But that story is only admirable when it's a response to what God has called us to do. Right? When we're doing that to try to earn his favor, there's nothing admirable. It's pitiful. When we're trying to earn what God has already given us for free. So just be faithful where you are. If he's ordained you as a priest right here, right now, then just go to work with what he's called you to do and the place he's called you to do it. And don't believe that you have to give up everything to go somewhere else and do something else in order to fulfill this function. Now, if he calls you to do it, go for it. But if he doesn't, be faithful right here, be faithful right now. It also means if we're part of this royal priesthood that we don't have to sit around waiting for uh, hyper-spiritual moments to function as the priests. 
You, you don't have to wait for that moment where everything is just right. If you're waiting to function as a priest of God for the moment when you feel perfectly holy and at peace, you're never going to function as a priest of God. Or you might for about five minutes on a Sunday once a week. But that's, that's not what he's called us to do. And again, the role of the priest is to point to God. The role of the priest is to remember, the New Testament priest is to remember the perfect and final sacrifice has been made. All we need, Christ has provided. Every sin has been forgiven. And so here's, here's what's going to happen. There are going to be days you don't feel particularly priestly. Right? That you just wake up and, and you're just kind of a grouch all day long. There are going to be some days you fight with your spouse. There are going to be some days you yell at your kids. There are going to be some days where you're wondering, why did God give me these parents? Right? There are going to be all of these times where, where there's turmoil and there's strife. There's going to be difficulty that comes. And guess what? In those moments, you are part of God's royal priesthood. Because his priesthood is not about you and your efforts. It's about what Christ has done. And so we, we don't sit around thinking, I'll go to work once I get myself together. I'll become the priest in my office once I'm sure that my sins are, are perfectly and finally behind me and I'll never be tempted again. No, no, no. We are God's chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. Peter doesn't say you will one day be a royal priesthood. He says you are a royal priesthood. So right now, in this moment, where you are, you have been ordained by God to be a priest for him. And he's not waiting for you to turn your back on the secular and to somehow move into the sacred so that he can really then begin to work through you. At any time we tell God, I'll, I'll glorify you once you do this for me. We're revealing our own lack of faith and understanding of how God can move through every situation. One of the, the great uh, kind of historical reminders of this idea is Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach is one of the greatest composers um, in, in Western civilization, and, and if you are into the classical music, you know all about that and know a whole lot more about Bach than I do. If you don't know who that is at all, you're going to hear his music over the next month. Uh, you're going to hear it in, um, in movies, in TV shows, on the radio. You're going to hear it as you're shopping in the mall. Uh, Bach was just a, a brilliant composer. When he was about 48 years old, somebody gave Bach a, a copy of a, a Bible in German, in his native language, and he began to just devour it, and he became a man of, of devout faith, just had a, a strong relationship with Jesus, and began to view um, his composition and his work, both as a composer and as a musician, as, as part of what we're talking about this morning. It was a function of Bach's priesthood to use his gifts for the glory of God. And so in his Bible, he would make notes in the margins. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, it, it uh, tells a story of some of the temple musicians and some of their responsibilities and, and how they would play and things like that. And in the margin of his Bible, next to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, Bach wrote, At a reverent performance of music, God is always at hand with his gracious presence. Bach viewed this, the opportunity for his music to be played as an opportunity for everyone who heard it to experience the presence of God. And that was true whether, now he wrote a lot of sacred music for the church, 
But he also wrote a lot of cantatas for the towns in which he lived, a lot of what we would call secular music. And and Bach's belief was that both the sacred and the secular were opportunities for God's gracious presence to be experienced by those performing and those listening to the music. Now, it's, it's easy to look at someone like Bach and think, well, yeah, if I was gifted like him, I would believe that God could work through my gift. Bach, at the, the end of each one of his pieces, he would often sign his name so they knew it was his, and he would include three letters above his name, S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, Latin for glory to God alone. Bach understood that part of being a member of the priesthood of the believers meant that all of life becomes sacred. All of life becomes an opportunity to express our worship to God. All of life becomes a chance for God to work through us and to speak through us. And and so for Bach, whether they were sacred or secular, he wrote, he performed for the glory of God alone. Believing that every time he did his job well, God's gracious presence would be evident to people around him. Now again, we, for the most part, we're not a collection of classical composers, right? We're, we're a group of white-collar and blue-collar workers. A lot of us, we, the only thing we compose are emails, right? I mean, SDG, to the glory of God alone, CC, rest of the office. You know, like, it's just, it doesn't work quite the same way when it doesn't feel as magnificent as Bach. Like, are they going to be reading my emails in 400 years? Probably not. Do people read my emails now? Probably not. But when we believe we're part of the priesthood of the believers, that we are chosen by God, and before we do anything else, we are called to be priests for his glory then it changes the way we approach our jobs. And it's no longer just the the particularly holy and the particularly gifted who have the ability to work for the glory of God alone. But it means that God's gracious presence can be evident in your life when you do your work well for the sake of His kingdom and the sake of His glory. So if He's called you to teach, teach for the glory of God alone. If he's called you to care for the hurting, care for them for the glory of God alone. If he's called you to make sure the books balance, make sure they balance for the glory of God alone. If he's called you to clean the floors, clean them for his glory. If he's called you to write the paper, to lead the project, to coach the team, to run the household, whatever it is, wherever it is, we believe that as we do our job functioning as part of the royal priesthood of believers, that God's gracious presence will be evident through us, which gives dignity and meaning to the most mundane tasks. You know, there's so much of life that we just do because we have to do. You're going to jump back into those things this afternoon or tomorrow morning, just the the chores and the the daily ins and outs. But but what the, the priesthood of the believers reminds us of is even those moments have meaning because we are called by God to be part of his priesthood in every moment and in every place. So wherever he's called you, in your job, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your school, 
you don't need to keep praying that God sends a voice there. You are his priest. You are the priest of God in your home. You are the priest of God in your school. You are the priest of God to your classroom, to your office mates, to the people on the job site. You're the priest of God in your neighborhood, your dorm room, your apartment complex. This is a tremendous privilege he has given you. Wherever you go, you have access directly to the Lord through Jesus Christ. And not only do you have access, but you share that presence with those around you. It's a tremendous privilege. It's also a great responsibility because as you go back to work and to school tomorrow, as you return to your neighborhoods this afternoon, I can promise you one thing. You are surrounded by people who need to experience the gracious presence of Jesus. And they're not waiting for you to stand on your desk or stop the job for a moment and preach a sermon to them. But as you work well, God is glorified. As you live your life with integrity by the power of the Spirit, you provide a testimony of His grace. And as you have the courage to take the open doors of conversation that God will present to you every single day, you will get to speak words of life, hope, encouragement, and salvation. You will begin to tell the story, whether overtly or in undertones, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How your hope for salvation, your certainty for the future is Christ alone. How you've been saved and sustained by his grace and through his faith alone. How the scriptures provide you with a a standard for truth and a guide for the way you live. And as people begin to see God's gracious presence in you and through you, you will get opportunities like a priest to invite them to experience the same thing. It's one of the greatest privileges God allows us in life is to be part of extending his grace to others. We're going to conclude this morning by receiving communion together. As we we do, it's a reminder to us that all we need, Christ has provided. And you're going to sit and you're going to receive the elements. You're going to hold the bread and the cup in your hands. And as you do so, it's a reminder to us that, that we did nothing to earn this. We did nothing to achieve it. It has just been given. And so as it's given, we receive it. And as we receive it and it becomes part of us, we also get the opportunity to live it out and to share it with others. The band's going to lead us in a a final song as they pass the bread and the cup to us. So let's take a moment and just reflect on the truth of God's grace that's been extended to us and our new identity as his chosen people and his royal priests. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.